0: Hello everybody, this is Heidi James and I want to welcome you, welcome you personally to the October 2021 edition of Right on Prime. And given that October and Halloween can be scary enough, we didn't want to up anybody by throwing a new voice into the co-host seats this month. So of course, I'm joined by my dear old friend, Vanessa Cardi. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Heidi. And yes, old is the
1: operative word, like that witch costume that I still have in my closet that I've had since I was five (laughs) years old.
0: I'm not lying. But now are you all set for Halloween? Yes, I am. I love Halloween. It's my favorite holiday. And my favorite thing is the little miniature chocolate bars that we allegedly give to trick-or-treaters, and I probably shouldn't admit that I enjoy eating a lot of them. You know what would actually get me into even more of that like creepy, mysterious Halloween mindset? An unusual case, because nothing says Halloween more than a miniature caramel bar or a diagnostic dilemma.
1: Well, luckily for you and your ghoulish medical sensibilities, I have just the thing for you. This was a 20-year-old man who presented to our
0: outpatient family medicine clinic, with a lump near his belly button. Oh my gosh, I know what this is. This is an alien, specifically. It's a Goa'ul from Stargate, right? You despise the Goa'uld.
2: I am the Goa'uld.
1: Almost. Almost. No, but actually, don't <laughs> get ahead of yourself here. Not that there are actually aliens in this case, but still, don't get ahead of yourself. Let me explain. So this was a young man who was known for fairly crippling anxiety, but other than that had no serious physical issues in his really in his 20 years of life. A brief chart review before seeing him showed me that his last medical visit was to the emergency room about 18 months before, and at that time he'd been given some mupirocin antibiotic ointment for umbilical discharge. Now, right off the bat, this surprised me, as while umbilical discharge and umbilical candida are fairly common in more obese patients, I wasn't sure I'd ever seen it in a young man who was verging on being underweight. So I put a pin in that, not in his umbilicus, but in that past medical history, and I carried on. And what did you carry on to find out? Well, the patient informed me that about three days ago, there started to be some pale, thin discharge from his umbilicus, and the following day, a bump appeared under his umbilicus. So the day before I saw him, the bump was larger, and the day that I saw him, it was larger still, and now it was red and painful. So I had a quick look, and while the rest of his abdominal and skin exam were totally normal, he did indeed have a lump below the inferior pole of his umbilicus. If the belly button were a clock, this mass started at the sort of six o'clock region and carried on caudally from there. It was about three centimeters by three centimeters. It was raised, protuberant, red, warm, and squishy.
0: Ah, squishy, squishy. And I think if we were a serious medical program, we might use the word fluctuant. No, you see, because it didn't feel fluctuant in the same way
1: that an abset does. That's why I said it literally felt squishy. It was the same way that a water balloon feels, like when it has sort of a firm membrane, but it's squishy
0: underneath. It's not fluctuant. It's a different term. And we should use the word squishy more often. This is interesting so far, but I'm not really sensing the fear factor yet. So is the scary thing that this is a peri umbilical abscess that started as a local umbilical infection? And maybe this is a bit of like you're trying to be cute here and actually present the dullest case ever? Well, abscess was
1: certainly on the differential, but hang on there, it's not as dull as you might think, so I did a quick ultrasound.
0: And you saw the alien, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. You see, this was a big, big twist that I was throwing in. You blew
1: it! No, I didn't actually see an alien, but I did see a cystic lesion with a clearly defined border that was filled with liquid, and there was no apparent sediment or sludge, and none of that cobblestoning of the surrounding tissues that you often see with an abscess. So it made me wonder if this was not, in fact, a uracal
0: cyst. A what kind of cyst? A uracal cyst.
1: (laughs) Now, I only had very vague memories of this from a medical school lecture, and also possibly having seen one in the emergency room as a medical student, or maybe having heard about one. And clearly I couldn't remember a lot of the details, so I did some research. So think back to embryology class and the stages of gut and the genitourinary system development. So around week 4 of embryogenesis the urachus forms and serves as a connection in the preperitoneal area between the GU system and the umbilicus. Now usually the urachus is supposed to involute into sort of a fibrous band, but in some folks this doesn't happen quite as it should and a bit of the urachus sticks around in that preperitoneal space. So is it kind of a one size fits all issue with urachal remnants? Well actually, as with so many things in medicine, these anomalies are kind of along a spectrum. So if the urecus doesn't involute, then that tube basically stays wide open and the umbilicus and bladder are in actual open communication, which kind of alarmingly can lead to a giant umbilical cord at birth, which is full of urine. And I really hope that's not something I ever see. Now, at the other end of the spectrum from this, you have these uracal cysts, where the ends of that tube are essentially closed off adjacent to the bladder and the umbilicus, but a piece of it remains open in the middle, like a sac or a cyst. And I'll come back to this one in a minute, but just to round out what else is on the spectrum there, in between the complete connection and the uracal cysts, you could either have a bladder diverticulum, where that extra tissue is adjacent to the bladder,
0: or you have an umbilical polyp, where, you guessed it, the extra tissue is next to the umbilicus. So, for what you saw in your patient, is that fairly typical?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the urechal cysts might be picked up incidentally on abdominal imaging. In fact, a lot of them are picked up that way. But they can also appear clinically in childhood or even adulthood. Sometimes they present with pain and umbilical discharge, and sometimes there is a mass or signs of local infection. And interestingly, my patient said that he's actually had several umbilical infections in the past and was successfully treated with antibiotic creams, like that one time 18 months prior when he'd come to the emergency room. But he'd never had the pain or swelling that he was having this time.
0: So I just want to jump in here and mention something that I think would be on the differential, and that would be the Sister Mary Joseph nodule or node that, you know, we sometimes see as a metastases of a pelvic or abdominal cancer. But I guess his presentation of recurrent infections and then an infection preceding, that would make you pretty comfortable that that's not what you're looking at.
1: Yeah, exactly. That and coupled with the ultrasound definitely led me away from that particular diagnosis.
0: Mm, Okay. So what did you do for this patient? After
1: I looked up what we're supposed to do, We did what they told us to do, which was try IV antibiotics while trying to arrange his transfer south to get some imaging and see urologists. This wasn't like a medevac, but it was just something that he was going to need to be seen for. And I went with antibiotics because there is evidence that these cysts can get infected with gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, either from the floor or from the gut. But the antibiotics in his case, unfortunately, did nothing. And what he needed was an ultrasound or CT scan and ultimately some surgery, which in the end is exactly what he got.
0: And is surgery necessary if the cyst isn't bothering the patient? I mean, obviously your patient got it, but does everybody need it?
1: Well, it appears that for some of the smaller cysts, there might be some evidence that you can adopt a watchful waiting attitude. But there is actually a risk of adenocarcinoma in these remnants. In one study, in fact, 50% of the resected cysts showed signs of adenocarcinoma in adult patients. It's not as high a rate for kids, but it still can be a risk. So the patient really needs to understand the risk of leaving the cysts in place, And also realize that if they do choose that watchful waiting route, they're going to need lifelong monitoring to make sure they don't develop adenocarcinoma.
0: Okay, okay. Wow. Something we don't see very often and easy to miss and to misdiagnose. So thanks so much. But I think now, Vanessa, now that we've had this caper explained, I think it's time for the rest of the show. What excitement do we have to look forward to? I think it's going to be a pretty interesting month for our listeners. You and Hobie are chatting about the impact of social media on
1: health, while Ben Shepard and Penny Wilson tackle long-acting contraceptives and different forms of
0: emergency contraception. Then, I'm joined by Dusty Narducci, and we do an overview of eating disorders. And in the Rural Med piece for the month, you and Dr. Julie Veef talk about a pediatric case of altered mental status. And enough blathering from you and I, Vanessa. I think it's time to jump into what people are really here for, and that is October 2021, right on Prime.
3: From semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee.
4: All
0: right, Hobie, this month we are talking about social media, smartphones, and their impact on mental health, particularly the impact on adolescent mental health. This is timely because I have a couple of tweens in the house who are clamoring for smartphones and social media accounts, which... My husband and I are both steadfastly ignoring at the moment, but uh, (laughs) I'm glad we had the chance to talk about this to help inform our decision-making as parents, but also to help me help my preteen and adolescent patients.
5: Well, I'll just say, I got even younger kids at home, elementary age kids, and they are (laughs) asking when they can have a smartphone because their friends have smartphones. And my response is, what elementary school kid needs a smartphone? (laughs) Who are they calling and texting?
6: (laughs) Hello. Gam Gam, it's Jimmy. Yes, sweetheart? Mama won't let me eat ice cream in the bathtub, and I tell her that you always let me eat ice cream in the bathtub. Why can't I eat ice cream in the bathtub? Um, who is this? Uh, just hang up. I'll text you.
7: Jeez.
0: Lucky for us, there's been a couple of papers published recently on this topic, so we're not totally flying blind here.
5: That's right. There was an article in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, February 10th, 2020, And there was also a review in Pediatrics and Review from 2020 on social media anticipatory guidance. So it's specifically what we can do as physicians to provide guidance and prevention for our patients. And so a lot of our discussion will be based on those two articles.
0: What comes to mind first when you think about potential problems related to smartphones and social media and youth?
5: Particularly when it comes to teens, one of the clear things is that sleep disruption is a huge problem. And so with the smartphone use, with the ubiquitousness of of the way that social media works, and it's kind of always 24-7. So I think that's a huge issue. There is some association related to unhealthy weight from snacking and lack of physical activity regarding uh, smartphone use and constant social media use. And then there are DSM-5 criteria addictions related to smartphone use and the internet. Things like problematic internet use or internet gaming disorder which in the last several years, we've become more familiar with as primary care physicians as we are seeing a lot more younger people who are using smartphones or gaming or doing those kind of things on a regular basis. Now, I will mention, certainly there is a concern for underlying depression and anxiety in patients who are in tweens and teens who are using smartphones and social media excessively. And they think maybe up to an 8% prevalence of these disorders in patients. And so we're talking maybe one out of 12 teens or tweens who are using social media on a regular basis are struggling with anxiety or depression related to that. So I think that's an important piece for us to remember.
0: Okay. We'll look at some of those in more detail in a sec. But first, Hobie, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that feeling so many of us get when we spend time on social media. I know that feeling, it's kind of like a vague jealousy or dissatisfaction, like when we scroll through our acquaintances, imagine best lives and compare it to our actual real lives. You've had that feeling too, right?
5: Yeah. And and I think it's this like phenomenon of FOMO, the fear of missing out, and and they define it as this pervasive apprehension that others might be having rewarding experiences from which one is absent. So the idea here is someone is getting to experience something that you are not being able to experience and that leaves you feeling apprehensive. Right? It leaves you feeling dysthymic. You don't feel great. And so that's been linked to things like Facebook usage and those kind of things where you're constantly uh, scrolling and kind of saying, "Oh, well, they got to do this or they're over there or they're vacationing here or they bought, just bought that and i'm not getting to do those things or if you don't check you're kind of like what's happening i know someone is doing something and i can't see it or be a part of it or like it or not like it or comment on it and that seems to cause that same sense of apprehension and so i think that that is clearly a problem that this internet age and people who have grown up with social media are now experiencing
0: yeah fomo is a huge driver of the discontented life wow Another thing I've noticed with social media and smartphones that I'd like to hear your thoughts on is its impact on attention.
5: Yeah, certainly one of the things that is clearly talked about is multitasking and attention and focus. And so the question is, can you watch TV, do your homework? Can you text and listen to music all at the same time? Because that's probably what most teens are doing, right? The TV is on, some music is playing, they got their earbuds in and they're trying to do some homework and ding, their phone goes off and they're answering their friend. All the data would support that we can't really multitask as humans. What we end up doing is kind of switching linearly between different activities. And that actually, it slows us all down because we're just, it takes us a fraction of a moment to kind of move from one thing to another all the time. And so that's clearly a problem.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about how sleep is being impacted by all the social media and cell phone use?
5: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about this lack of sleep. And so there's a study, 2015, about 40% of United States adolescents were getting less than seven hours of sleep. And that greater than two hours of social media use or electronic media use was associated with insufficient sleep. So clearly there seems to be some association between how much you're accessing electronic media and how much you're sleeping as a teen. And then the Ontario study that we referenced earlier, they found that greater than one hour of social media use was increased your odds of insufficient sleep. So just over an hour of use every day meant that as a teen, you are less likely to sleep. And so this is a problem, right? It reduces your melatonin secretion. It plays havoc on your circadian clock. It reduces your REM sleep, reduces next morning alertness. Like So many things get affected. I would say as physicians, just think about how we all were post-call, right? Where you were up all night. And maybe you didn't even have to be up all night, but you just got fractured sleep. And then all of a sudden you're trying to round, you're trying to present, you're trying to write orders, you're trying to talk to patients, and you just feel fuzzy, right? You just feel like, not like you're on your A-game. And essentially, that's what our teens are experiencing, because they are up too late, they're getting constantly pinged, they're getting fractured sleep. And then we say, oh, well, why did you fall asleep in class? Or why did you perform poorly on this test? Or why are you struggling in your athletics? Well, if they're not getting good sleep, I think that's pretty clear that those things are related.
0: And we know adolescents and youth need more sleep than full-fledged grown-ups with developed brains. So the people who need it the most are not getting it.
5: That's right, yeah, clearly, right? And I would say, yeah, as bad as we feel, like a teen who's trying to understand their place in the world, their brains are rapidly developing, right? They're gonna experience that to a greater degree. And so I think, you know, even if we were just to approach it from this idea of sleep, right? And we talk to our teen patients and their parents and their families about sleep issues related to social media use, electronic media use, and sleep, I think that would go a huge way in sort of changing the discussion around social media.
0: So far, we've talked about the impacts of the general use of smartphone and social media on youth, but I want to focus on the specific content that could be accessed by our teens. How can that impact them?
5: That's the other thing that they talk about in these articles is they talk about exposure to things. So things like tobacco use or alcohol use or high-risk sexual practices that they might see on social media or electronic media use, right? They also talk particularly about eating disorders, like pro-eating disorder websites promoting anorexia or unrealistic representations of the human body, right? And, you know, there have been studies looking at this, that females had a negative mood after about 10 minutes of Facebook browsing. So they just had to use Facebook for 10 minutes and to browse through and see photos of unrealistic-looking women or people doing unrealistic things. And uh, immediately, they weren't feeling better. They were feeling worse. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, I was shocked reading that article and talking to some patients, like the things that they see, like the pro-anorexia, the pro-ana yeah. stuff and yes. and self-harm, like watching people self-harm yes. and like, oh, it's just so heartbreaking. But there's even more than that.
5: Yes. The other thing is things like cyberbullying, which is quoted anywhere between 10 to 40% of tweens or teens have experienced cyberbullying either on social media or through their smartphones. And then sexting, which is, you know, sending explicit messages or images through smartphones and, and phones, 10 to 12% have experienced that from ages 10 to 19. So we're talking, these are younger kids experiencing this as well. And then most shockingly, online solicitation was quoted as being around 9%. So it just, to me, it is frightening to see or hear some of these statistics because I'm old enough that social media and the internet were not really a thing when I was growing up, right? And so it's just like, I I can't even think about my own experience as a way to guide patients and families around some of these issues because it's a coming of age story for all of us where we're experiencing this internet revolution together. And we're trying to guide people on how to navigate it safely and to have this online citizenship, which I think is often kind of missing from our our discourse when it comes around social media.
0: We touched on mental health a little bit earlier, and I want to come back to it now. And I'll pose you the question, Hobie. Does social media exposure cause mental illness or does it unmask or amplify it?
5: So that is the $10,000 question. (laughs) Does excessive social media use or electronic media use lead to depression or anxiety? Or just does it just uncover it, right? Was it always there and social media just kind of brought it to the forefront? I'm not sure we have a clear answer to that, but I would say ultimately as primary care physicians, as people delivering care and trying to prevent negative outcomes in our patients, I don't know if it 100% really matters that much. I think the clear thing to us is that that teen patient in front of us, the family that we're trying to counsel, we know a couple of things. We know that excessive social media use seems to have negative outcomes. And we also know that depression and anxiety is already prevalent and social media use may engage that more in patients. Whether it causes it or uncovers it, either way, it's going to make it more. And so I think that just behooves us that we need to have that discussion. We need to be screening our patients. We need to be engaged in that discussion around those visits that we have with these patients.
0: Now, how can we take this information and apply it to our interactions with our
5: patients? This is a tricky one, but some of the ways that I might recommend we think about this is we have a good framework for harm reduction in a lot of things like substance use disorder, right? We often talk about when patients have an addiction to opioids or another substance, rather than just promoting absence Mm -hmm. only, we often say, well, the first step is harm reduction. And the best step might be harm reduction. And so I think if you tell your teen, like, give me your phone and you'll never have a smartphone again, (laughs) or, you know, we're going to delete all your Instagram accounts and you'll never be allowed to sign up for Instagram again. (laughs) Maybe, maybe that would work for a select few people. I think that would cause a lot of hard and fractured conversations, right? In families that may not be appropriate, right? And so thinking about harm reduction, we talked about this, that the study showed that maybe more than an hour or two hours of social media a day seemed to really negative impact sleep and other things. And so maybe you say, look, our goal is not to eliminate social media, but to really limit the amount of time that our teen or tween accesses social media or is on electronic media, right? And then really specifically for adolescent girls to really focus on things like confidence, media literacy understanding and appreciating the differences in body images. That's such an important message that we can give to our patients and to their families to focus on these things because it's clear that especially for adolescent females, the unrealistic expectations that they're getting from social media, we have to combat that. That's a message that either explicitly or subliminally they're getting through social media. And it is our job as primary care physicians to help combat that. And it's our job to advocate and equip parents so that they can also combat that stereotype or those negative stereotypes that they're experiencing through social media. Tangibly, what can parents do to help? Again, we talked about the disruption of sleep and to so protect bedtime. And I've seen things like, don't plug in your phone next to your bed. Plug it in like at the farthest corner or even in a different room. Create media-free times of the day, right? So you say during meal times, no one can look at their phone. And so you do that or you create media-free zones. So they talked about, hey, when we're in this bedroom or where we're in this living room, you cannot use your phone here, right? This is a, a media-free zone where we are here to interact with each other. I thought those were excellent pieces of advice, very concrete things that families and we could advocate for as physicians to help our patients sometimes deal with this.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think in this matter, like all things in parenting, it's a matter of getting your own house in order too, so to speak, like evaluating our own social media and smartphone use because our kids, our teens are looking to us for guidance and they will replicate what we do. And I say this as an avid social media user. And since my kids are getting older, it's really made me rethink how I use it and when I use it.
5: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, one of the things they talk about in these guidelines is to role model good social media behavior. And that was just like, I just hit me in the gut because I was just like, Why does my kid want a smartphone? Because she sees me on my smartphone all the time. All the time. You know, right? And like, I'm constantly reaching for it. I'm constantly scrolling through it. I'm constantly doing something, right? And so I think that's a really important gut check for us to give parents to sort of say, hey, if you're concerned about how your teen or tween is going to use social media, can we talk about how you're using it and how you're role modeling online citizenship? And are you talking to your kids about that? I think that's a really important thing.
0: Now that you've spent some time Thinking about it and doing the research on social media use and smartphone use and seeing its impact on sleep, its probable impact on mental health and attention. Will this change your practice?
5: I do think it's a worthwhile discussion to have with our patients. And probably I'll just say after sort of doing this research and thinking about it, it's not a conversation I have enough with my teenage patients who come in to see me. Because, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, we all kind of all have that conversation. But I probably need to fold social media, electronic media use more into that discussion than I do currently.
0: Yeah, me too. And I'm also going to keep my eye on the literature. And if I find any updates, Toby, I'll send them your way and we'll talk about them on the show.
5: Yeah, absolutely.
3: I got a 50. Old man in cardiac arrest and our building just lost power. Alright, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, three thousand grand for sole medron. Staff. What are you,
2: MacGyver? No, I'm the generalist. generalist.
1: This month on The Generalist, we wanted to tackle contraception and specifically two different aspects of contraception. Namely, long-acting contraceptives or locks, as well as different methods of emergency contraception. Now, we recognize that availability of these contraceptives might vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but hopefully these overviews will give everyone a good grounding in these basics. Now, we decided to split this section into two parts, with the larks coming first. So let's jump right in and join Ben Shepard as he introduces the guest expert as they take on that first topic of the long-acting contraceptives.
7: This month, we've got Penny Wilson. Penny's an Australian like me, but is currently working in Canada. Now she's actually the perfect person to have on this show because she is in fact a generalist. She's a general practitioner and a GP obstetrician trained in Australia who's worked in clinics, in hospitals, in large places, small places. She really understands the message we're trying to send on the generalist. And thanks, Penny. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say.
8: Thanks for having me. It's good to be back.
7: Let's talk about LARCs. Tell me what a LARC is, and then I'll let you just give us all the knowledge that you have.
8: So LARC, L-A-R-C, stands for Long-Acting Reversible Contraception. So it encapsulates a few different methods, the most common one being the IUD, or the intrauterine device. And there's a couple of different types of those as well. So there's a copper IUD, which works by inhibiting fertilization, by being toxic to sperm. And then there's a hormonal IUD containing a levonogestrel, and there's a few different brands of these with different doses, but they are Marina, Skylar, Kylena, and JDS are the common ones. And how these work is they have a few different modes of action, but they thicken the cervical mucus to inhibit the sperm motility, they can cause some atrophy of the endometrial lining, and they sometimes, but not always, inhibit ovulation. Now, another type of LARC is a etonogestrel subdermal implant. So it's also a type of progestogen. And those are called Nexplanon or Implanon, depending on which country you're in. And they work a bit like the hormonal IUD, but they have more inhibition of ovulation.
7: How do you view these long-acting contraceptive options? Do you think they've got a really big role in healthcare, or a small role? Tell me what your practice and your opinions on them are.
8: Yeah, I think that they should have a bigger role than they do, actually, Ben. And really, the ACOG, so the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, has been recommending LARCS as the first-line contraceptive option for everyone, including adolescents, for over a decade. But there are some contraindications that we'll get to, but for most folks, there is a lark to suit them.
7: What do you think the barriers are to patients having a greater adoption of these methods?
8: There are a lot of reasons why this is the case. In the 70s, the early forms of IUDs caused problems with PID and tubal infertility. And, you know, modern IUDs are not associated with these risks, but I think some of the fear kind of permeates through the generations and there's still a bit of a misunderstanding around there. And, you know, it's, it's also a bit about cultural expectations and patient preferences and access to people who can insert uh, the, the devices. You know, people want to take what their family members and their friends are taking. So, it kind of is a bit of a vicious cycle in terms of trying to get more people using it. And of course, the other thing is health provider attitudes, which hopefully we can change with our podcast today.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Let's get everyone on board. So, all right, sell me the lark. Tell me why we should use them more often.
8: The reason that we've already alluded to is that you insert them and then they work in the background and you don't have to remember to take them. And so the perfect use and the real world use for the LARC forms of contraception are almost the same. Now, if you compare that to like a combined oral contraceptive pill, an estimated 9% of patients will have an unintended pregnancy in their first year compared to well below 1% for the LARC methods. And that's because people don't take it perfectly. There's been one British study which estimated that if 5% of women switched from the pill to a lark, there would be 7,500 fewer unintended pregnancies each year, which I just find mind-blowing.
7: Those numbers are incredible. What do you see the downsides? Is there a trade-off with larks? They, you know, the, the, clearly there's some big benefits. What are some of the downsides?
8: You know, there aren't that many downsides, I've got to say. The main side effects that people have are bleeding problems. So heavy or painful bleeding is the highest risk with copper IUDs. It tends to settle down within the first few months for a lot of people. The, the subdermal implant, some people can have heavy or frequent periods. Some people can have light or no periods, but irregular bleeding is fairly common. And with the levonorgestrel IUD, most people have no bleeding or very light bleeding. So that's a real benefit of that.
7: What's your advice to a woman who comes to see you and says, I have a leavener IUD, I'm still unhappy with my bleeding pattern? Is it usually a matter of saying, let's give it another three, six months and see how it's going at that point? How do you typically handle that conversation?
8: If you're in the first couple of months, it's a pretty common experience and you can safely tell them that it will likely settle down within four to six months. If it's a problem that isn't tolerable for the patient, then you can use another type of hormone in combination with the IUD until things settle down. So like you could use a combined oral contraceptive pill with the hormonal IUD for a few months until it settles in and see what happens. But of course, if it's a problem for people, you can just take it out and try something else.
7: I think it's so important to have a plan for that potential consultation. And I think just having that calm presence. And having a plan of how to maybe add another agent or just be patient can really transition these women to a bleeding pattern they're far more happy with.
8: Yeah, I think you're totally right in that people with bad experiences are way more vocal about their experiences than people who have good experiences. People don't usually go on the internet to rave about how wonderful their IUD is. But the the experience of the vast majority of people with hormonal IUDs is really, really good. I tend to tell patients a bit of an off-the-cuff comment that, nine out of 10 female doctors have a hormonal IUD which has roughly been the case in most of the recent clinics that I've worked at. Yeah. And that kind of thing tends to help reassure patients that you know this is a method that a lot of well-informed people use and find really good.
7: Can I tell you an extra part of my counselling that I used to include that you haven't mentioned? Yeah. So, I used to say very clearly, when you get this box, and I'm referring to the marina, I promise you it is nowhere near the size of the box.
8: Yeah. Yeah. I tell patients that as well.
7: <laughs> ha- have the boxes come down in size? Because I-, I used to remember they'd bring them to clinic and I thought, geez, no wonder you're so nervous about this thing. It's so much packaging. And I used to have a laugh at them and say, look, it's just full of instructions to the doctor and how to do it. All right, Penny. So should we finish off our discussion of some of the side effects of these larks?
8: Yeah, so they're generally uh, very well tolerated. But for some people who are particularly sensitive to hormones, they can get some progestogenic type side effects. So they would be things like headaches, acne, change in libido, appetite or weight change. And this is far more likely with the subdermal implant compared to the IUD because the amount that gets absorbed systemically is significantly higher.
7: Any people who can't have a particular type of long-acting reversible contraceptive?
8: Yep. So as always, we definitely want to encourage people to refer to the CDC medical eligibility criteria, the MEC, for the full comprehensive list of risks and benefits for different patient characteristics and contraceptives. But in summary, for the IUDs, you don't want to put one in somebody who has an active uterine infection. So endometritis, pelvic cervicitis, chlamydia or gonorrhea, PID, and also anyone with active cervical cancer, suspicious uterine bleeding or major structural abnormalities of the uterus. Now for both the hormonal IUD and the subdermal etonogestral implant, they aren't recommended for people with concurrent or recent breast cancer or severe liver disease. But compared to other methods, the list of contraindications is pretty small. So for most people, they are A-OK to go ahead with a lark.
7: So Penny, what you're telling me is these are easier to be compliant with they are more effective, there are less side effects, and there are less contraindications. Am I hearing the right
8: message? That is absolutely the right message. Now, I'm not sponsored by any of the Larka companies, but I think they're really great. I don't think we use them enough. And I think part of the reason is that we as doctors don't know enough about them or feel confident enough. So yeah, hopefully we've been able to allay some of those concerns that our listeners might have and, and get them recommending more larks for their patients.
1: I couldn't have said it better myself, Penny. That was a great overview of the older and newer lark options. So read up on them, listen to the segment again, and be prepared to field your patients' questions. Now we're going to take a quick break so your brain can lay down all that information. And then a little later in the show, we're going to rejoin Ben and Penny to tackle the topic of emergency contraceptive options. Greetings all, we have something special on offer today, as we are going to do an introduction to eating disorders. And who better to help us through this topic than our very own Dusty Narducci. Her voice is of course familiar to write on Prime listeners, as in addition to being a GP, she is also a sports med expert, and we have picked her sports med brain on many an occasion. But today she joins us in a different capacity, as she is one of the few practitioners in the United States who has been awarded the SED certification. SEDS stands for Certified Eating Disorder Specialist and is awarded by the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. Clearly, she has the information and expertise that we all need to hear about on this particular topic. So let's get down to brass tacks and join Dusty and Heidi as they give us an overview
9: of eating disorders. Take it away, Dusty. I am so proud to be a SEDS. Being a physician who specializes in feeding and eating disorders is just one of the best honors I could possibly have. And it's made me feel so purposeful and has driven my career in the direction that I want it to go. Oh, I'm so happy to hear
0: that. And I'm even happier that you're here to give us a broad overview on the topic of eating disorders, because this is an area that so many of us don't know as much as we need to, to be able to best help our patients.
9: Yes, I couldn't agree more. So eating disorders really are a public health concern and are associated with the highest probability of death among psychiatric disorders, aside from opiate abuse. So even though these eating disorders can be in these subclinical forms, they still impose a significant burden on patients, families, clinicians, and of course, the healthcare system. So they are often underdiagnosed and overlooked. And this is most likely because eating disorders present in such a variety of ways. And a big moment here, guess what? Almost all eating disorders have nothing to do with food. So in reality, they serve as unhealthy strategies to cope with life problems such as emotional regulation, self-esteem or feelings of inadequacy, troubling relationships, fears of responsibility, loss of control, and about a million other things.
0: So the issues we're seeing with food is more so a symptom rather than the actual problem.
9: Absolutely. So although eating disorders are frequently identified as separate disorders— all really are part of an eating dysregulation, and it's driven by these cognitive distortions. Eating disorders occur on a spectrum of severity with symptoms, and they're going to change throughout one's lifetime, often due to life events and treatment interventions. So it's really common for individuals to migrate between the subgroups of the eating disorders on this spectrum.
6: Risk factors.
9: So some of the risk factors include ages between 13 and 14 and 17 to 18, although Any age can be affected, and the onset really is going to begin around those ages, though. Female gender, although males are probably underdiagnosed rather than less affected, and then westernized societies and upper socioeconomic statuses have always been labeled as risk factors. Other risk factors include specific personality traits such as sensitivity and perfectionisms that you'll see in somebody who's suffering from anorexia, Impulsivity in those suffering from bulimia and low self esteem, usually in those suffering from binge eating disorders. There's an increased risk in families who have a history of mood disorders as well as obesity. Also, think about involvement in high performance sports. So, wrestling, dancing, long distance running, also any career or any hobby like modeling or media professionals who have to maintain a certain look or certain weight. These are just to name a few, but those are also risk factors. What about sexual orientation? Does it play a role? I'm so glad you brought this one up. Yes, absolutely. So sexual orientation does seem to play a role with gay males and straight females being more affected. Good to know. And early onset of dieting, psychiatric conditions such as depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, and OCD are all risk factors to developing an eating disorder. Incidents. Now, how common overall are eating disorders? Up to 5% of our younger population is affected by anorexia. And up to 7% are suffering with bulimia. And 3% are suffering with binge eating disorder. These numbers don't take into account the subclinical forms of these disorders. So as I always say, it's definitely seeing us before we're seeing it. And until I specialized in this, I didn't realize how much we're missing
6: diagnosis.
0: Now, in order to be able to pick these up, I think we need to have a better understanding of how to diagnose eating disorders. Could you explain some of the key concepts here?
9: Yes. So I like to think of it as ruling in an eating disorder. And I think this is never taught to us as clinicians because clinicians more often try to rule out medical and psychiatric causes for presenting signs and symptoms before even considering that an eating disorder is the problem. We're missing this in the emergency room. You know, it's not even on our differential sometimes. And a lot of these patients, that's where they first show up. Anorexia is often easier to spot than bulimia, right? You're looking at a person that's probably severely thin. So that's not as missed as bulimia or binge eating disorders and other forms of feeding and eating disorders as well. So, as I mentioned before, individuals often move throughout that ED spectrum. So sometimes they're really severe. And then you know, throughout their life, their eating disorder maybe doesn't go away, but it's not as obvious, and then they just get missed in the system.
0: Now, I've heard that there have been some recent changes in the diagnostic criteria for eating disorders. Why don't you give us an update?
9: Yes, there continues to be a change in the criteria from various organizations and committees. So currently, we're using the DSM-5. For now, I'm just going to kind of simplify everything and identify the five eating disorders that are listed in the DSM-5. So we have anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, also known as ARFID, and other specified feeding and eating disorders known as OSFED. So there's a whole bunch of different eating
0: disorders, but what are some of the characteristics or criteria we see in all of them? that can help us identify when our patient is struggling in this area.
9: Individuals have abnormal eating behaviors, the presence of cognitive distortions that really overestimate the benefits for thinness and body shape in most eating disorders. Often the behaviors that cause significant medical consequences or psychiatric distress are sustained over a period of time without any self-improving symptoms. And commonly, again, they're going to transition from that one subtype to another. Do you recommend any particular screening tools? So fortunately, many screening tools have been created to assist clinicians in diagnosing eating disorders. I don't think that's where we fail in this field. One of the most common general screening tools is the SCOF questionnaire. It is a brief yet systematic set of questions that can be very useful in the busy primary care clinic. So as previously mentioned, the SCOF allows us to confidently rule in, remember the key here, rule in eating disorders rather than trying to rule everything else out. So if clinicians could Use this scoff sooner when they're trying to consider diagnoses in individuals. This might be beneficial.
6: Comorbidities.
9: Are there any psychiatric conditions that we see more commonly in people with eating disorders? So, forty to seventy percent of comorbid psychiatric disorders are mood disorders like depression, dysthymia, and bipolar. Two anxiety disorders are very common as well as OCDs, alcohol, and other substance abuse disorders and personality disorders. This could be really confusing, though, because I see a lot of individuals with eating disorders that are mislabeled before their eating disorder is diagnosed as bipolar or anxiety disorder, things like that, when really the underlying problem is you know, their malnutrition and their egocentric thinking during this eating disorder that's just taking over their life rather than a psychiatric disorder.
0: That's a good reminder to look for those comorbid conditions.
9: Absolutely. So a number of medical and psychiatric conditions imitate eating disorders. Consider major depression, which frequently leads to 15 to 20 pounds of weight loss. OCD or obsessive-compulsive disorder or just behaviors might lead to a decrease in food intake without the desire or concern of body weight. Sometimes paranoid schizophrenia and delusional disorders can really complicate the picture if there's a food association. So I've had a few patients with severe ADHD that required multiple stimulants and these were dosed throughout the day, and this led to a lot of weight loss when there really wasn't an underlying eating disorder. But and then at the same time, there's a lot of individuals that I've seen that abuse stimulants to help them lose weight and facilitate their eating disorder.
0: Yeah, and that vignette brings up an interesting point that medical diagnoses can sometimes blur the picture when we're trying to assess patients with eating disorders.
9: Yes, they absolutely can. Any malabsorption disorder, such as celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease, can really complicate the picture. I do want to warn practitioners, though, that a lot of patients with eating disorders will come in and say that they have an allergy, such as celiac disease and being allergic to gluten or can't handle lactose. And that's actually from their eating disorder and a way for them to restrict. So it can get very complicated.
6: Approach to treatment.
0: Now, how about treatment? Can you give us a general overview of how we help manage these conditions?
9: I encourage our primary care physicians to not only diagnose, but also treat mild to moderate eating disorders. Treatment requires a multidisciplinary team, which is going to be an expert in psychology for eating disorders, a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders, and then a social worker would be wonderful too. And then sometimes you can add in a dentist, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. You know, athletic trainers, if it's an athlete, there's um, just a whole spectrum of people that you could ask to assist you in this multidisciplinary team, depending on the patient's needs.
6: Level of care.
0: Just like with any other medical conditions, our patient's health might be affected to varying degrees, and the degree to which they're affected might impact the level
9: of care they need. The initial question should always be, is this patient safe? So all severe and urgent medical disorders should be treated immediately. So some patients may require full or partial hospitalization. In the show notes, I'm going to provide a link to the American Psychiatric Association level of care guidelines for patients with eating disorders. This is very helpful for clinicians trying to decide what level of care because things sometimes absolutely need to be treated immediately and this can't be done outpatient. Okay, and what do you consider the various levels of care to be? So level one is outpatient, two is intensive outpatient, and then three is partial hospitalization, also known as like a full-day outpatient care, and level four is residential treatment, and five is inpatient treatment. So these treatment levels are based, again, on multiple factors, and there's a lot of resources out there to help determine, you know, which one the patient should kind of consider So medical status, suicidality, weight as a percent of healthy body weight, and then motivation to recover, co-occurring disorders. Is there a need for structure? Is there ability to control compulsive exercise, purging behaviors, and environmental stress? So there's a lot of things to take into consideration here.
6: Treatment goals and therapies.
9: Now give us some specific treatment goals, Dusty.
0: What are our patients aiming for?
9: So general treatment goals for all eating disorders are going to include correcting all medical abnormalities. So this is all the urgent medical abnormalities first. So hypokalemia, hypophosphatemia, and self-improving symptoms such as muscle wasting. So GI symptoms as well. And then any long-term concerns, including amenorrhea and impaired bone health. That really needs to be the foundation of What clinicians should focus on. And then with time, an individual's weight should be fully restored. And I think that's a big misconception of just, you know, focus on the weight, focus on the weight, focus on the weight. And that will come with time once that person has that multidisciplinary care. And then pre illness weight is a good general intermediate goal to get to eventually. Okay. So treatment is not just about
0: achieving a weight goal, it's also about helping patients to think differently about their bodies, food, and lifestyle.
9: Absolutely. Establishing a normal eating behavior with normal dietary content really needs to be happening in various social situations and emotional states, and that's not easy to do. So removing that preoccupying thought about weight and shape and finding a really healthy mindset about weight free from cognitive distortions is the ultimate goal. Appropriate therapy with or without psychotropic medications for comorbid psychological conditions can be very beneficial and developing, a comfortable and a safe lifestyle habit regarding food, shopping, exercise and clothing. That's like the maintenance yeah. part of recovery. Providing education to enhance family support, couple support, you know, creating a plan for relapse and preventing relapse. This may involve support groups and outpatient rehab programs and also a gradual introduction to mindfulness and stress reducing like modalities. So cognitive behavioral therapy has been an effective psychotherapy for eating disorders. CBT is also known as cognitive behavioral therapy. Guides patients in changing their overvalued beliefs about their body and food. So another option, although outcomes take a little bit longer, is something called IPT or interpersonal therapy. It focuses on relationships, life transitions, and how to improve the way you communicate and relate to others. So I'm a really big fan of something called radically open dialectical behavioral therapy, a lot easier to say RODBT. So this is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's going to f- focus mostly on mindfulness skills, developing emotion regulation skills, learning to deal effectively with others, and providing distress-tolerant skills.
6: Medications.
9: Now, is there a role for medications, Dusty? So SSRIs, such as fluoxetine, sertraline, and citalopram, can be considered but are best when really used in conjunction with a psychotherapy. These might decrease binge purge episodes, but once the SSRIs are discontinued, all the studies have shown that relapse is very common and should actually be expected. So medications prescribed with the intent to increase appetite should always be avoided. Plain and simply, they just do not work.
6: Supporting the patient's friends and family.
9: Now, as much as
0: eating disorders affect an individual, we know that the condition and the patient doesn't exist in a vacuum. How do we help other people in these patients' lives?
9: So family-based outpatient treatment for adolescents might be beneficial and helps the family in acting like the treatment team. So it really externalizes the eating disorder and focuses on moving forward rather than spending so much time trying to figure out what caused the eating disorder. This is very helpful because families... And spouses often feel to blame. And focusing on that family-based outpatient treatment just kind of stops that and just allows the patient and the family to gain insight and move forward. Psychoeducation for significant others and guardians just is crucial. And it's important for primary care physicians to assist in this and have resources to prevent any burnout. Final Thoughts. So some things primary care clinicians need to avoid is premature discharge of these patients as well as treating comorbid conditions too soon. If patients are stable, it's really okay to wait to see how these psychological comorbid conditions evolve once the eating disorder is treated. It's pretty remarkable to see how the anxiety and the OCD and all of that kind of just dissipates. Most medical and psychiatric comorbid conditions will resolve once weight is restored, and these treatment symptoms and other conditions may result in loss of focus of treating the actual core problem, which is the eating disorder that we so often miss.
0: Yeah, we sure do. We sure do.
9: So as a primary care physician, I am so like excited to say that we are fully competent to diagnose and manage mild to moderate cases of eating disorders. And I hope these segments about feeding and eating disorders facilitates a better understanding of the spectrum of eating disorders, but more importantly, gives providers the confidence to care for these patients and their families, because this is such an underserved, under-recognized patient population.
1: Thank you so much to Dusty Narducci and to Heidi James for that great overview on eating disorders. I'm not sure about you, but I learned so much, and I'm hoping to hear some more about this topic in the future.
2: the generalist.
1: So we're back for part two of this month's generalist episode on contraception. And in this part, Ben and Penny are chatting about emergency contraception. Take it away, Ben and
8: Penny. Emergency contraception is also known as post contraception, and basically it's medical therapy that can be used after unprotected sexual intercourse to prevent pregnancy after the fact. Now, there are two main types of emergency contraception. The first one is a copper IUD, or intrauterine device, and the other are pills, which are commonly called the morning-after pill. Now, these are further broken up into two different types of pill. There's a levonorgestrel progestogen pill, which is a single dose. And there's a newer one called ulipristal acetate, which is usually called ELLA or ELLA-1.
7: I'm really interested to hear a bit more about ulipristal. I know it's a bit more common and we can talk about how it works differently. I also remember very early in my training, we sometimes used to recommend that women use their normal combined oral contraceptive pill packet. Is that something that's still done or that's on the way out? I remember women often felt pretty awful after it.
8: Yeah, there were various other different regimens that were previously used, like a two-dose levonogestrel and also a combined estrogen progestin type dosage, but they aren't as effective and, as you say, side effects are worse, so we don't generally use those anymore.
7: All right. So what would you like to tell us more before we get into the details of each type?
8: So what I really want people to understand is that they don't have any effect on an already implanted embryo, but how they work is they delay ovulation and they prevent fertilization. And the IUD also prevents fertilization in a slightly different way. It's pretty much just toxic to sperm.
7: Can you talk us through what drives the decisions around which one you choose for your patients and then some practice points around how we should actually use them for these women?
8: Yeah, so the levonogestrel pill is the most commonly used because, you know, we don't actually always get patients into our clinic. Sometimes they just go to the pharmacy. And the good things about these levonogestrel pills is that they're generally available over the counter. They're approved for use up to seven to two hours or three days, but they can actually be used up to five days with less efficacy on day four to five. And the risk of ongoing pregnancy is in the order of one to two percent. So if we do actually have the patients in our clinic with us, we can talk to them about ulipristal acetate, which does require a prescription. Now, the advantage of this is that it's effective out to day five and the risk of pregnancy is around 1%. So it's a little bit more effective than the levonogestrel.
7: Can you just correct me if I'm wrong, but levonogestrel is a synthetic progestogen, whereas ulipristal is a progesterone receptor partial agonist. Is that about right in terms of the pharmacology?
8: Yeah, that's right. All
7: right, sounds good. So we'll look get us back to your practice points with weighing up that these two options.
8: I want to let people know that there are no contraindications to either of these pills. Neither of them require any specific workup or examination beforehand. And so patients should ideally be able to access these with as few barriers as possible and as quickly as possible because time is of the essence. But one caveat to that is that both of these pill methods do seem to have a little less effectiveness in patients who are overweight or obese. So that's where the copper IUD comes in. Before we jump into that, I just want to talk about the side effects that people can have. So the periods may be delayed for a few days or there may be some irregular bleeding. That's a common side effect that people get. People can also get like acne or bloating or headaches or those sort of normal progestogenic side effects. Now, people need to be aware that there is still this ongoing risk of pregnancy. So if their period is more than a week late, then they do need to take a pregnancy test and follow up with their medical provider. Now, this assumes that people always know when their period is due, which isn't always the case. So... Generally, a pregnancy test three to four weeks after taking the morning after pill is a good practice point just to catch those few rare cases where a pregnancy will come through.
7: So Penny, tell me about the copper IUD. For years, I've known this is a very reasonable and effective option. Can you tell me a little bit more about them and make me a bit closer to the expert that you are in this
8: option? So the copper IUD is the most effective option. So the rates of pregnancy in the two biggest trials were between 0 and 0.1%. So it's astonishingly unlikely that people will have an ongoing pregnancy with insertion of a copper IUD. And as we mentioned, body weight has no impact. So this is great for patients of all sizes. And the IUD can be used up to five days post-sexual intercourse, but some studies even show that it's effective out to 10 days. The other advantage, of course, is that it provides ongoing contraception. So that's a bonus for people who don't have another form of contraception that they're using and they don't want to get pregnant in the future.
7: Okay, that's actually really interesting. So how long can you use a copper IUD as contraception for? How long does it last?
8: It depends on the brand, but most of the copper IUDs last between five and 10 years.
7: I'll be honest with you right now, I've found it a difficult option to recommend for women. And to be honest with you, that's all on my part. I've probably done some people a disservice by not recommending this option more. So thanks heaps for bringing it up.
8: Yeah, well, you know, IUDs, there are some barriers for patients generally, not just in the emergency contraceptive setting. So, you know, patients have to find a practitioner who's skilled in inserting them Sometimes they have to get the device and then bring it back to the clinic. So there are a few extra barriers compared to just getting the morning after pill. But the other thing to say is that there are other types of long-term contraception that you can also discuss with patients in this kind of unplanned sexual intercourse situation. So you can also talk to them about taking any other type of hormonal contraception, like the regular combined oral contraceptive pill or the injection or the implant. So, you know, it's a good time to have that counselling conversation with patients.
7: Now, can I just just clarify and resummarize some of these numbers. Leavener gestural regime risk of pregnancy around 2%. Ulipristal risk of pregnancy around 1% and can be used a little bit later and copper IUD the most efficacious risk of pregnancy around 0.1% and can be used ongoing. Is that a fair sort of summary of the numbers?
8: Yeah, you've really got the nail on the head there.
7: So Penny, after you've prescribed or after a patient of yours has gone to a pharmacy and obtained some emergency contraception, can you tell me when they're supposed to restart their other forms of contraception?
8: Yeah, so for the levonorgestrel pill, they can start any other hormonal contraceptive method immediately and just use a barrier method for the next seven days. For the ulipristal, the advice is to wait five days before starting a hormonal contraception and then use a barrier until the next menstrual period.
7: Okay, that seems pretty straightforward. Well, all right. I think that's been a really useful conversation. Is there any final take-home messages or last pearls of wisdom you want to give to all our listeners?
3: Take-home points.
8: Yeah. So regarding emergency contraception, let your patients know that it's available. Try and remove any barriers to patients getting it as quickly as possible. And remember that a copper IUD is a really good choice for effectiveness and in higher BMI patients.
1: Thank you so much to Ben and Penny for those two great segments on different aspects of contraception. To be resources for our patients, we need to be up to date on all of the different options out there. And now, thanks to Ben and Penny, we are now all a little bit further ahead in our understanding. Thank you so much for listening and join us again next month on The General.
0: Rural Medicine
3: Talks.
1: Greetings all, welcome to Rural Medicine, and I am once again joined
2: by Julie Veith. Julie, why don't you remind us who you are and where you're from? Hi Vanessa, thanks so much for having me back. So I am coming to you from rural upstate New York, Canton Potsdam Hospital. We're about two and a half hours by ground from a tertiary care center, and uh, we have some basic services, but other than that, we transfer a lot of our tertiary care patients. Sounds like a perfect rural medicine case, so let's hear what you've got. So, this was a day I was actually coming in for a night shift. And at 7 p.m., I I came in and I was getting sign out on a three month old male. My sign out physician told me that the baby had been sent in because mom presented to the PCP with this episode that she was describing that happened earlier in the day. When her son had been crying, she noticed a soiled diaper. She was cleaning him up. And as she was doing that, he had about a three second period of apnea with very brief episode followed by this of cyanosis. But it all spontaneously resolved. There was no loss of tone. There was no erythema. There was no fever noted. There were no convulsions noted. He seemed to be completely back to normal after that. But he had never done this before, and certainly she was concerned enough to call the pediatrician who said, well, come on in, and let's take a look. The report in sign-out was that you know he was a three-month-old male who was uh, cared for at home. He had siblings. Mom and dad were involved, and there had been this episode. And now, what did we do? At this point, they had obtained a blood glucose that was normal. And there was this contemplation of do we do this sepsis workup, or is this something else? And so I started by going to see the patient. And what did you see? What I saw was a very small for age little boy. He was only 3.8 kilos. And of note, his birth weight had been 1.9 kilos, so he had gained some weight. He was awake. His eyes were open, but he was really minimally interactive. He was moving all of his extremities. There was no crying, no abnormal movements. He seemed to have normal tone. I picked him up. We did a head to toe. Nothing was really out of the ordinary apart from this minimal interaction with human beings around him. I didn't find any bruising. His scalp looked normal. There were no signs of trauma. So I imagine while you're examining this little
1: boy, um, that maybe you're chatting with mom, finding out a little bit more about his birth history and his life so far, up to three months?
2: Yeah, definitely. And so mom was present and her son had been born full term, spontaneous vaginal delivery. But the in utero state had been complicated by her use of prescribed buprenorphine. And he was ended up being admitted for nine days with neonatal abstinence syndrome. He was small for gestational age, and he also had two days of hypoglycemia while he was admitted in the hospital post-birth. Unfortunately, he'd also had some in utero exposure to amphetamines, nicotine, and mom had had no prenatal care, and reported that she only found out she was pregnant one week before his birth. After that, he'd actually been lost to follow-up after his first neonatal office visit, so we really had nothing else to go on. So what was the next thing that you did? Well, certainly then the differential pops into your mind. And I have to say, if I had not had children of my own, I might have thought that this child was acting normally. He was small, but, you know, he had tone. There was nothing abnormal about his exam, apart from this look of somewhat lights on, but nobody home. There was no outward seizure activity, and that blood glucose had been normal, which was certainly one of the first things on the differential. The other things I started thinking of, though, of course, were, was there trauma? Had he gotten into something by accident? Could there be infection? And he was unvaccinated. He had missed his first vaccine appointments. So while he was three months, he was still definitely at risk for sepsis. So what did you do next? And I said, we've got to do some orders. And actually the first physician had put some orders in already. And so these were cooking, a CBC, blood cultures, chemistry, a urine analysis with a urine culture, And then the good old procalcitonin, which, of course, we could spend a lot of time talking about. Oh, please, let's not. (laughs) Did you test anything else? Did you do a urine drug screen? I added on a urine drug screen only because of mom's history and wanting to really cast a wider net. Well, then the question is, do you LP this child? So my plan was to use the labs as a sort of an initial guide into what we were going to do. By this point, the child had been in the ED for a couple of hours and still had not spiked a fever. And I put out a call to our pediatrician. So it sounds like the baby's getting the run of tests that we would expect.
1: How did the baby react during these interventions? Because these can usually cause a fair bit of distress for a wee one.
2: Yeah. And so this is where it was sort of the perfect storm. Because it was shift change, both for myself and for the nurses, I had not been there for the initial phlebotomy stick for those blood samples. And it turned out that when I asked later, the baby hadn't really cried appropriately when they were getting stuck by a needle to obtain some blood sampling, as you would normally expect from a three-month-old. Yep, that definitely sounds concerning. What about when they uh, did the urine? Well, this was, again, happened around the time of shift change. And I noticed that the urine hadn't been done. And so I asked the nurse, you know, has this been done yet? He said, no, the baby had a wet diaper initially, so we were just waiting until the baby was hydrated. And then I just thought, well, wait, this baby hasn't cried for any food. Mom hasn't offered any formula. What's going on here? And the baby really was not showing any hunger cues. And so we obtained then a catheterized urine sample and there was no crying. And this is actually what tipped me into admitting this child and thinking something is very wrong with this child. Every baby I've ever catheterized or participated in a urine catheterization in has always cried. Okay, so you called the pediatrician, I'm guessing, and what did they say? She asked if I could do the LP, and again, really no crying. Now, sometimes, you know, babies are actually really great when they get their LP, but still, this was just a little bit too much of too cooperative, not acting appropriately. Then the next question really was, do we head CT this child now? Do we wait later? Do we look at the LP results? And this was a conversation that the pediatrician and I had and ultimately decided that there was really no evidence of trauma. We were going to see what the LP results showed. And so we deferred the head CT for a little while longer. Luckily, the head CT ended up being normal. There was no evidence of any trauma. There were no fractures. There was no bleeding. And how did you feel signing over this case? I was really glad that we had all put our heads together and suddenly realized that all of these small pieces of the baby not acting right was going to lead us down the pathway of admission. The LP ended up coming back completely clear and the cultures were ended up being completely negative. We were lucky enough to have the PCR available to us and that was all done for all of the bacterial and viral pathogens. And again, all negative. So the baby was upstairs, admitted overnight. Mom had to go home because she had another toddler and an older child to care for. The night went on. I didn't hear anything untoward for this child. And at the end of my shift in the morning, I decided to go upstairs and follow up and see how he was doing. I had noticed while he was in the emergency department, he was really awake. Too awake. He had not slept in probably eight hours. I followed up with the nurses upstairs and they said, really, he'd been awake almost all night. He had started feeding a little bit, taking formula from a bottle with a good suck. And finally, just before 7 a.m., He had drifted off to sleep, but they also noticed this, you know, appearance of that lights on, but nobody home appearance. Still no seizures, still no fever. I got a chance then to catch up with the pediatrician that morning, and she had combed through all of the primary care records and came across a note from a little while ago, and it was a nurse's note entered into the EMR. And this is where it becomes so difficult because, A, we have multiple EMRs, both for our hospital setting, our ED setting, and our primary care setting. And also, there's just sometimes so much information that you have to comb through it all. And so the nurse's note had actually indicated that CPS, or Child Protective Services, had called the pediatrician's office a little earlier that month and said that we noticed some twitching in the baby, and someone called us and said they had reason to believe that mom might be giving the baby buprenorphine. But unfortunately, that note was never acted on. And so the pediatrician said, wait, We can do a test for this. The pediatrician added on a urine drug screen for buprenorphine. That screen was positive. And at that moment, we just felt our hearts sink. But we also knew that we'd probably found the reason of why this child was not acting appropriately. Oh, the poor wee thing. So how did the baby do? Well, luckily, he did really, really well. He stayed in the hospital for five days, just making sure that he didn't go through withdrawal. He gained a whole pound while he was in over those five days. He was placed in protective care, Child Protective Services was involved, and unfortunately, the siblings were also removed from the home. And there was never any finding as to how the buprenorphine had gotten into his system, but we were definitely concerned that a three-month-old, who's only taking formula, was somehow getting buprenorphine. That's certainly a terrible story for this little
1: boy and his siblings as well. But it's so great that you were able to have your spidey senses turned on and uh, sort of aware that there was just something not right, even though he wasn't fitting into all those sepsis criteria that you might have been looking for, to remember that there still could be something else going on. So what lessons did you learn from this case?
2: Well, I learned that the tincture of time really can work in your favor. Now, obviously, there are things that we have to act on immediately all the time in the emergency department. But in this case, time actually helped. The other thing that helped is that I was really communicating a lot with the nurses to find out what was exactly going on with this child because I couldn't be in the room all the time. And it wasn't until we all put our heads together and realized, wait, that wasn't a normal interaction. That's not a normal cry or that's not any cry at all. And there's just not something right. And like you said, that spidey sense, sometimes you can't put your finger on it, but you've really got to act on that spidey sense. Certainly when we usually admit patients, I would say 95% of the time, we know what's going on, we have a diagnosis, and very little times does that actually change. I didn't know what the diagnosis was going to be in this child in the end, and this was never even on my differential in terms of buprenorphine being the cause. Tox, sure, buprenorphine wasn't there. And and so I think, again, really just digging deeper through those records, talking to your, your nurses, your pediatricians, your consultants, and acting on that spidey sense. Again, it wasn't a huge, wow, we just resuscitated a patient, but I think it was a pretty good save.
1: I think that's definitely a good save. And I think one other thing that really hits me from this story is the value of a good chart review. Whether you have a paper chart or an electronic record, there is value of doing that scut work and going back and looking through all those notes because little gems can be hidden in there and they can give you the
3: clue. Summary.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking such good care of this baby. And of course, thank you for sharing the story. Thanks, Vanessa.
6: Well, some excellent points were made there. If you've got a child that is not screaming in the emergency department, then there's probably something wrong with that child and you should do a further workup. Now, let's go to Corpendium and read a bit about buprenorphine. It's a partial opioid agonist, high receptor affinity. It has an onset of about 15 to 30 minutes with a peak effect of about one to four hours. Due to its low intrinsic receptor activity, there is a ceiling effect with respect to somnolence and respiratory depression. It has a dose-dependent duration of action due to its slow release from the mu receptor. And so this is a pretty safe drug, and so therefore it is being used in patients who have opioid issues. And I talked to Sean Norton, and he said, look, it is actually minimally expressed in breast milk. So if this child was showing significant symptoms that are consistent with bupomorphin, which certainly it sounds like from this case, the lights were on but nobody's home, then it was probable that this was actually being given to this child. It wasn't sort of uh, licking the lollipop well, three months old and, you know, three kilograms are not going to do that. And it wasn't being, you know, expressed in the breast milk, so it is likely that somebody was actually giving it to this child, perhaps to chill them out. I don't know. That is supposition. There you go. And actually, we're going to do more on this buprenorphine sort of toxicity in kids and in adults and etc., because you're going to see more and more and more of it out there. And so, sure, not. And Stuart Squadron will get on it. Thank you to Vanessa and Dr. Veith for this excellent rural medicine case.
7: Oh
9: yeah, that's right. Chicka 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 chicka.
7: Primary
1: care medical abstract.
9: <laughs> With Ken and Steve. Do ball. do bow.
0: Welcome
3: to this spectacular edition, the October 20. A PCMA. Yes, it is the Halloween edition of Right On Prime. So hopefully we've got some scary abstracts to go through, Steve. Right. All we have are treats. There are no tricks in this month. Just treats when it comes to these abstracts, right? That's right. Although some of the authors
4: are always trying to trick us into thinking their evidence is better than it actually is. Oh, tell
3: me about it. I've got some nerdy points to make on a few of these, but (laughs) let's get rolling on this October 2021 edition of PCMA with abstract number one. Paper one. This is the efficacy and safety of antidepressants for the treatment of back pain and osteoarthritis. And it's a systematic review and meta-analysis in the BMJ 2021. This is back-to-back episodes that have an article about back pain. And the objective of this systematic review was to look at what's the efficacy and safety of using antidepressants for this indication, back pain. And they also included people with hip or knee osteoarthritis. So it did branch out from just purely back pain. But it did include patients with sciatica. So these study authors did what they're supposed to do. They registered their study with Prospero and they followed the PRISMA guidelines and did the extensive search with no language restrictions. And they included randomized control trials that compared an antidepressant to placebo in patients with back, hip, or knee pain, or both. Now they did exclude randomized control trials that had patients with fractures in it or cancer, no rheumatoid arthritis or any recent surgeries. So these are are chronic pain people, low back pain, hip or knee osteoarthritis. The primary outcome they used was two primary outcomes. And Steve, you know as well as I do, there can be only one primary outcome. That's right. Highlander, always Highlander. And it's the 35th anniversary, by the way, of Highlander coming up. Wow. Yes. So why not go check that out on Netflix? Classic 80s movie. So back to the actual abstracts here. The primary outcomes, pain and disability. And they used a 0 to 100 scale. And then the adverse events were the secondary outcomes. They found 33 trials with over 5,300 people. Now, 28 of the trials were these parallel group designs. And then five of them were crossover trials where you'd be in one arm and then you could cross over to the other arm. 14 were sponsored trials and five, it was unclear where the money came from. Six antidepressant drug classes were evaluated. Most of the ones being evaluated was for the class of SNRIs, 15 of them. And the main result was they had moderate certainty that SNRIs reduced back pain and disability at the three to 13 week interval, and then disability due to osteoarthritis at the two week or less intervals. And I'm not gonna give you the point estimates because they weren't large enough to be clinically significant. They were statistically significant, but not large enough to be clinically significant. So I'm not gonna go through the numbers. The rest of the data on SNRI showed low or even very low levels of certainty and tricyclic antidepressants and other antidepressants didn't reduce pain or disability. So while there was some moderate level of evidence that SNRIs resulted in statistical differences in mean pain scores with the magnitude not being great enough to be clinically significant and without clinically meaningful improvement on pain or disability I don't care what the side effects were or how common they were any side effects would be unacceptable if I'm not getting anything for this and I understand which came first is the pain or the disability or the depression, you know, which came first. Certainly, I can understand that if you have chronic pain, you can become depressed and lead to depression. However, in this study, those with depression also did not demonstrate an improvement compared to those without depression being put on an antidepressant.
4: Yeah. Two thirds of the patients using SNRIs experienced adverse events. So this is kind of like, well, you get very little benefit, if any, and you might have an adverse event. It seems like a lose-lose here. I didn't really understand why they felt the need to combine back pain and hip and knee osteoarthritis. Yeah.
3: Just like throw it in for good luck. I think that just because when they were throwing the net out, they cast it wide, they were looking for back, And when they got backs, they got a few hips and knees thrown in there too, and some of the RCTs, so then they tried to mash it up. I didn't think it added much to it.
4: Yeah, and the authors even say that all but one trial with sample size of more than 100 was sponsored by industry. So they're calling for large definitive trials free of industry ties, but I don't know if studying this more is going to show anything but a small effect. It seems like we have a pretty good evidence base
3: showing a pretty small effect here. Yeah, no. And, you know, the reason I picked this was, again, that struggle to find something that we can treat people who have chronic back pain because it is a really challenging and disabling condition. And so, all right, we'll keep looking. We'll keep scouring the world's literature to try to bring you something. And hopefully we'll find something that does have something clinically meaningful. And I like the concept of.
4: Just because this doesn't work on average doesn't mean that it wouldn't work for one person. But I think the key when you're trying something that is possibly going to be marginally beneficial is set a time limit. So we're going to try this for six weeks. We'll see what the positives are. We'll see what the negatives are. Revisit then. But we're not just going to put this on the like list of things that you take forever medicines.
3: Yeah, and I think it's really good to set expectations too, you know, and you don't want to undermine yourself, but you have to say, listen, we don't treat a population, we don't treat a systematic review, we treat an N of one. You're an important person if you want to try it, but you have to know that I'm not really confident that it'll be super effective, and there's no free lunch. It comes with some side effects potentially, but if you want to give it a shot, we can give it a shot. Bottom line we cannot recommend prescribing antidepressants routinely for chronic back pain or hip or knee osteoarthritis.
4: Paper two. Paper number two, major GI bleeding in older persons using aspirin, incidents and risk factors in the esprit randomized controlled trial. We know that prescribing aspirin for primary prevention is a balance between preventing cardiovascular events and colorectal cancer, that's on one side, and then bleeding on the other side. In 2016, the USPSTF gave a B recommendation for adults 50 to 59 with 10% or more cardiovascular risk, and a C recommendation for 60 to 69 and insufficient evidence over age 70. So we've known for a while that 50 to 59 year olds are less likely to have GI bleeds and maybe that's why the harms and benefits balance out a little bit better. But after that recommendation in 2016, the ESPRI trial came out. This was a record, three articles in the same issue of New England Journal of Medicine that looked at community dwelling people over age 70 Aspirin for primary prevention. And I think it was really a game changer. It showed increased major hemorrhage, no improvement in cardiovascular disease, and an increase in all cause mortality. So I think since 2018, we really haven't been prescribing aspirin for primary prevention in people over 70, even if you're giving it to anybody else. So that was
3: not the goal. The goal was not to increase mortality. (laughs)
4: Right. (laughs) That was not the desired outcome. So that's like a spooky Halloween moment.
3: That's scary, right? You know, you're, oh, it's from the bark of a tree. You know, it was patented in 1899. Oh, it's a natural product, ASA, acetylsalicylic acid. You know, we're going to use it for primary prevent. They tested it and what happened? More people died. Yeah. And I think that's a really good, scary take-home message from this is, you know, just because it's natural or just because it's been around for over a hundred years, mm, test it to see if it actually does provide a net benefit. Yeah. And a lot of
4: that increase in mortality probably comes from the GI bleed. And so these authors use the data from the Esprit trial. It's one of those trials that just keeps on giving to look in more depth at GI bleeding in patients over 70. They calculated the incidence, risk factors, absolute risk using data from that randomized control trial of 19,114 patients. The endpoint was major GI bleeding that resulted in transfusion, hospitalization, surgery, or death. And they adjudicated that by two physicians who were blinded to which arm they were of the trial. So the results, they followed these patients for 4.7 years. There were 137 upper GI bleeds, more in the aspirin group. There were 127 lower GI bleeds, more in the aspirin group and they estimated a 60% relative increase in bleeding overall. So the absolute difference is still pretty small, 2.3 per thousand not on aspirin versus 3.7 per thousand person years on aspirin. And they have a table that I think is really helpful in there that shows the absolute risk of bleeding And for a 70-year-old not on aspirin, it's 0.25%. And it goes all the way up to 5% for an 80-year-old taking aspirin who has additional risk factors. So since that esprit trial, 2019, the ACCAHA guideline says not to give aspirin to patients over 70 for primary prevention or those younger at increased risk for GI bleed. And that's a strong recommendation. And just like the first paper, when balancing harms and benefits, if there's no benefit, then the harms
3: are going to dominate. And you know you've covered it really well. The only thing I want to put a pin on is just to remind everybody we're talking about primary prevention here. And the balance, right, tips when you're talking about secondary prevention for someone with coronary artery disease or atrial fibrillation. And so just remember, we're talking about primary prevention, not secondary prevention. And that's when with
4: secondary prevention, you can look at, you know, what's the number needed to treat with aspirin and then calculate the has blood score to see (laughs) what somebody's risk of bleeding is. And you're potentially more likely to have some benefit when it's secondary prevention.
3: Exactly. Bottom
4: line. Aspirin increases major GI bleed by about 1.5 per thousand in patients over 70 and more in some patients depending on medications
3: and comorbidities. Paper three. Abstract number three, it's a randomized trial comparing prescribed light exercise to standard management for emergency department patients with acute mild traumatic brain injuries. Now, this is something that can be really scary for patients for parents who have children that have concussions. And we see these people in the office and they're concerned, oh my goodness, I've had a concussion, what should I do? And this was a randomized control trial to figure out if the mantra, rest is best, post-concussion, is the mantra we should be following. And so they took adults, 18 to 64 years of age, presenting to the emergency department, but they presented with mild traumatic brain injuries, concussions. And the intervention was a standardized discharge instructions that said, okay, for the first couple of days, just rest. And then after that, you can start with some light activities. And they gave them a prescription for 30 minutes of light exercise daily. So every day to do 30 minutes of light exercise. And as an example, they said, well, try walking. This was compared to the standard, okay, 48 hours of rest and then gradual return to activity, but instructed not to exercise until the symptoms had resolved, or you saw a medical provider who, you know, cleared you for getting into exercise. Now, their primary outcome was the proportion of patients with post-concussive symptoms at a month's time on this standardized tool. They had a number of secondary outcomes. I'll just put those in the show notes for people if they want to look at those. They had close to 400 patients. The median age was 32, 57% were female. One-third of these injuries came from a fall. One-third of these patients had a history of anxiety and a quarter had a history of depression, which is a bit higher than what you see in the general population. They found no statistical difference between light exercise group compared to the non-light exercise group for the primary outcome or for any of the secondary outcomes. Now, this was an unblinded randomized control trial, which does threaten the validity of the results. And when you looked at how much exercise people were doing by seven days, the total exercise over seven days in the control group was 30 minutes. But in the people that were supposed to be doing 30 minutes every day, only did 35 minutes in a week. Interestingly, again, this cohort had a high percentage of patients with a history of anxiety and depression. So you have to wonder, does this represent all people with concussions or are people with anxiety and depression more likely to come into the hospital and say, oh, you know, I'm concerned? And they also had a 30% loss at the 30-day follow-up, 30% loss to follow-up. So that also can threaten the validity. What did you think, Steve, of this?
4: Yeah, I was impressed that about one in eight of these patients still had post-concussive symptoms 30 days out. So that's substantial, although exercise does not appear to be a factor at all. And I was struck like you. It seems like everybody was exercising the same amount, regardless of which group they were in. So I don't really know if there's anything that you can take home from this. Possibly you could conclude that exercise is not harmful, although this probably doesn't prove that.
3: Yeah. And so that's sort of where I landed here too, as well, is that, you know, if you're feeling up to it, if you want to do it, I mean, tying these people down and saying, thou shalt not do any exercise. We're really standing on pillars of salt and sand if we're wagging our fingers at people. And it's like, well, if you want to, it doesn't really seem to matter. And so I'm going to be less strict about this whole, you know, not doing anything, you know, even when you have rested for a couple of days. I used to say, okay, well, progressive return to play, as in progressive return to activity, but also you can do progressive return to some light activity and light exercise. At least that's what I took away from this.
4: Yeah, and this is the second paper we've done in the last year. We did another one that showed, you know, people that did light exercise up to the point where
3: they were having symptoms did absolutely fine. And it gets back to this whole idea, when has strict bed rest been good for like anything? (laughs) Oh, you threw your back out, lie down for two weeks. Oh, that doesn't work. Oh, you sprained your ankle. Okay, don't do anything for two weeks. That doesn't work. You bumped your head. If you're feeling okay, you're feeling okay.
4: Yeah, that would be a good systematic review or MythBuster. Like, bed rest is not good for
3: anything. <laughs> Bottom line. In patients with mild traumatic brain injuries who are feeling well enough, it's reasonable to start some light exercise, like walking, after a couple of days of rest. Paper four. Abstract number four is another potential myth
4: buster. The association of intravenous radio contrast with kidney function A regression discontinuity analysis, whatever that is, from JAMA Internal Medicine, (laughs) June 2021. We have long considered radio contrast from CT scans to be nephrotoxic but then there's some emerging evidence that this may be due to older studies. And maybe with more modern technology, this doesn't happen as much. So this cohort study included all emergency department patients aged 18 years or older undergoing D-dimer testing between 2013 and 2018 in Alberta, Canada. And they analyzed the data with what they called a fuzzy regression discontinuity design. And I don't know if you can explain that,
3: Ken. Sure, yeah. Now, let me jump in there. This is what our good friend, Dr. Mark Abel, would call statistical jiu-jitsu. <laughs> right. They're basically, ooh, fuzzy, ooh, fancy schman. In other words, yeah, whatever.
4: <laughs> Thank you for your very expert You're opinion welcome. and knowledge on the topic. Erudite, <laughs>
3: erudite insight
5: into that.
4: <laughs> I did think it was pretty clever how they picked the cohorts because they looked at, sort of the threshold for the D-dimer and who you'd order the CT pulmonary angiogram for. And they tried to take people just on either side of the cutoff so that presumably there'd be less confounding differences other than the fact that some received contrast and some didn't. The main outcome was a dough estimated glomerular filtration rate up to six months following the emergency department visit where they got the contrast. They looked at 156,000 individuals who received a D-dimer test. The mean age was 53 and their mean baseline EGFR was 86. So the results, there was no difference in EGFR six months later with a mean change of negative 0.4 and no association with CTPA exposure. The negative negative point four was the difference, which is obviously not statistically significant. They did look at some more poem things, no difference in kidney replacement therapy, mortality, acute kidney injury, but it was probably not adequately powered to find those things. And so the authors claim, this is the strongest evidence to date that IV contrast is not associated with kidney injury. And I love, they closed strong. The authors concluded that their study further challenges the, quote, considerable clinical preoccupation with the <laughs> occurrence and prevention of contrast-induced nephropathy.
3: Burn! Yeah, yeah. In the medical literature, that's a slap.
4: Yeah, exactly. And if we have this so-called preoccupation, it really has not led to less imaging that I can see.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think, ooh, scary, contrast-induced nephropathy. Ah! <laughs> It's a unicorn, people. The burden of proof is on those saying that it does cause kidney injury. And there was a systematic review on this in 2018. And they had 28 studies with 100,000 or more patients. Now, it's still just observational data, but they didn't find a problem, right? Right. So you've got observational data, 100,000. But there is a randomized control trial on this. There was the PRESERVE randomized control trial that was published in 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was an interesting design. What they took is patients with low GFRs, between 30 and 60. So they're compromised, mildly compromised. So if you were less than 30 and didn't get in the study, if you had good kidneys, they weren't interested in you. They wanted people with GFRs of 30 to 60. And then they randomized them into four groups. You got saline to try to mitigate the contrast-induced nephropathy. They got sodium bicarb to mitigate the contrast-induced nephropathy. They got NAC. Do you guys call it NAC there? N-acetylcysteine? Yeah. NAC. They got NAC. Or they got placebo. Now, the primary outcome was a composite one of death or the need for dialysis or greater than a 50% increase in their creatinine at three months or so. 5,000 patients in this trial, this randomized control trial. No difference. No difference. So I think as proud as Dr. Brian Rowe, who I know from Alberta, who is one of the co-authors on the JAMA paper you just went through, he's a super smart guy. But that, I think it was pretty strong at the end. I'm more convinced by this study. I mean, the incidence is really low. It was 4 to 5% in all four groups. And it can't be mitigated by saline, sodium bicarb, or NAC. So my impression of this study was it's just another cohort study with some fancy math that doesn't support the cin hypothesis it's a medical myth it's a unicorn people yeah and
4: and that obviously doesn't mean to go give contrast to everybody who doesn't need it but this is probably not the reason to not do an imaging test that's indicated yep yeah if you need the study get the study bottom line Pulmonary CT angiogram and contrast is not associated with a change in a disease-oriented outcome, GFR, up to six months after the imaging study. Paper five.
3: Abstract number five is short course antimicrobial therapy for pediatric community-acquired pneumonia, the safer randomized clinical trial. See, we're going to keep everybody safe on Halloween. Yes. What a good time to keep them safe. And maybe it'd be safer not to give them so many antibiotics. So (laughs) (laughs) this was the short course antimicrobial therapy for pediatric respiratory infections. That's how they mashed up and got the abbreviate safer. And it was looking at whether five days of amoxil was not worse. So a non-inferiority study was not worse compared to a 10-day course of amoxicillin. So it was this non-inferiority trial. It was a randomized trial and it was done at two pediatric hospitals in Canada. They did subgroup analyses in this trial, but they should really be considered hypothesis generated. So let's not get into that. They took children six months to 10 years of age diagnosed with community acquired pneumonia being discharged home. They randomized them into Amoxil and they picked the high dose Amoxil 75 to 100 milligrams per kilogram per day. So you could get a total of a gram per dose and they got that for five days. And that was followed by five days of placebo pills. Or the other group got 10 days of that high dose of Now, the primary outcome was clinical cure at two to three weeks. They got close to 300 patients. The mean age was two and a half years of age and a few more males, 58% male. Clinical cure rate was about 90% in the intervention group and about 90% in the control group. Now, they did a 97.5% confidence interval because it's a one-sided test because it's non-inferiority instead of the 95% because you want two and a half at each end. So they only needed two and a half percent for the non-inferiority confidence interval. And it did go below the pre-specified margin or the delta of seven and a half percent for the per protocol analysis, which is the correct or more conservative way to do this, but not for the intention to treat analysis. But I got to tell you, Uh, this study bothered me a bit. (laughs) I mean, they asked a good question. They correctly said that a formal conclusion of non-inferiority could not be made due to the per-protocol analysis. Correct? Yep. And then they say in their conclusion that a short course is, quote, comparable to standard care, but the primary outcome was to look for non-inferiority. And then they tortured the data with a modified intention to treat analysis, a modified protocol analysis to find out some non-inferiority and seemed like they were trying to spin it. I thought it was a demonstration of publication bias because they were looking for something positive to say. How about you say you can't claim non-inferiority because we don't know if these children actually had pneumonia, or if it was bacterial pneumonia, or if any dose of amoxicillin would be better than placebo, the subjective nature of the primary outcome measure for clinical cure, and what about the harms, diarrhea? Yeah, I thought they did a pretty good job, as good as they could, in
4: determining which kids had pneumonia. They used the clinical criteria, they did x-rays. But that still doesn't tell us that they had bacterial. And so when you kind of like put all these kids together that have viral and maybe some bacterial pneumonia, it's going to be hard to show that one is better than the other when probably a lot of these kids would have done fine regardless.
3: With what was the third arm? (laughs) right exactly no antibiotic group right you know and so that was the thing you've got a fuzzy inclusion criteria yeah i know they're using the clinical criteria but it's fuzzy even on x-rays x-rays do not have a high sensitivity yeah right that's right true positives and like you said even if you see it is that a virus or a bacteria and even if it is a bacteria does giving an antibiotic shorten the course to make a patient meaningful outcome so there's so much fuzz in there That, you know, and it looked to me like they were trying to pump it up to They asked a good question. They got an answer. So just, yeah, talk about that rather than trying to make it into something more for some reason. I don't know. Residents will, they'll decide that they're going to treat somebody with antibiotics for
4: something. And they say, how many days should I do? And I kind of go, I just shrug my shoulders. You know, I guess we do five because we have like five fingers on one hand and 10 because we have 10 fingers on two hands. And then we do seven because that's a week and it's all kind of made up.
3: Yeah. 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 Bottom line. If you have decided to give antibiotics, so you've already made the decision you're in for antibiotics. So If you are going to give out antibiotics to children with suspected community-acquired pneumonia, then it's reasonable to do five days rather than the 10-day course of amoxicillin. Paper six. Abstract number six,
4: more kids and antibiotics... We're gonna talk about delayed antibiotic prescription for kids with respiratory infections. This is a randomized controlled trial from Pediatrics, March, 2021. As we already talked about, antibiotics are overused in children with respiratory infections. And so one strategy that's proposed is to delay the prescription. You prescribe the antibiotic, maybe because the parent really, really wants it, but you advise the parent not to pick it up right away. And this has actually been studied before. A Cochrane 2017 review showed no difference between immediate, delayed, and no antibiotics for many symptoms, including pain, fever, cough, runny nose, and patient satisfaction was similar with delayed antibiotics compared to immediate antibiotics, Cochrane thought that there was a little bit of a drop off down to 82% satisfied with no antibiotics. So these authors wanted to look at the effectiveness and safety of delayed antibiotic prescription in children with uncomplicated respiratory infections. So they had three different strategies, 436 kids, acute, uncomplicated respiratory infections in 39 primary care centers in Spain. And so the three arms were delayed antibiotic prescription, immediate antibiotic prescription, or no antibiotic prescription. And the primary outcomes were duration and severity. And yes, that was primary outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No blinding. The parents were instructed to wait between 4 and 20 days from symptom onset, depending on which illness it was, to start the antibiotics. And you know, here's where you just run into trouble with these respiratory tract infections in kids. They define them as pharyngitis, rhinosinusitis, acute bronchitis, acute otitis media, and that the doctor had, quote, reasonable doubt about the need to prescribe an antibiotic. So what are the results? The mean duration of severe symptoms was 10 days, 11 days, and 12 days in the three groups. No difference. Antibiotic use, of course, was higher for immediate antibiotic prescriptions, 96%. But if you delay it, only 25% of the patients ended up taking antibiotics. And even if you gave no antibiotics, 12% of them ended up getting antibiotics anyway. There were no difference in complications, additional visits to primary care, and satisfaction. Actually, 90% were satisfied in all the groups. And of course, gastrointestinal adverse effects were higher for the immediate antibiotic prescription. Number needed to harm 16 compared to no antibiotics for gastrointestinal adverse effects. And the authors conclude after all this that no antibiotic remains the recommended strategy. And- The lack of blinding in this trial would seem to make the antibiotics more effective as the outcomes were subjective. And actually, 82% of the parents whose children received antibiotics felt that antibiotics were very or extremely effective. So I like that they asked the parents that. I really don't know what else we can do to limit antibiotic prescriptions and respiratory infections. This is more evidence that a delayed antibiotic leads to not very many people using antibiotics. Maybe like narcotics, we need a national registry for antibiotics or something.
3: Wow, yeah. One of the questions I had was the external validity because it was done in Spain and I'm not familiar with the Spanish, not just the healthcare system, but their attitudes towards antibiotics in general. And so I was thinking, you know, if I give an antibiotic prescription and tell someone not to fill it, are they going to last 20 days, Steve, in your practice with a kid who's still symptomatic and not fill that prescription? I'm actually surprised. We've done other papers for
4: years about how what's most important is good communication. And so I'm actually surprised by people that don't pick it up. Bottom line. When a no antibiotic strategy is not well received... A delayed antibiotic strategy will reduce antibiotic use in kids with respiratory
3: infections.
5: Paper seven.
3: Abstract number seven. This is the scariest one for me because I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing the names of the drug. (laughs) We'll see how I do. Abstract number seven. Treatment of uterine fibroid symptoms with Relugolix combination therapy. New England Journal of Medicine 2021. How'd I do there, Steve? Well, you know, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. Relugolix. We know that uterine fibroids are common and they can cause heavy and painful periods. So, they had two studies published within this publication. So, there was the Liberty 1 and Liberty 2. And the studies, the goal was to determine the efficacy and safety of a once daily Relugolix combination therapy in women with fibroid associated heavy menstrual bleeding. Now, Lugolix is a combination of a oral gonadotropin releasing hormone receptor antagonist, but they did this combination therapy where it had estradiol and norethrodrone acetate. And you would take this once daily, right? That's the combination. And so it was this multinational study. It was done in North America, South America, Africa, Europe. I think they only left out the Asian countries and Australia randomized blinded placebo control so it sounds good right women 18 to 50 so you got the right age group they were diagnosed by ultrasound with fibroids and who had heavy periods and they defined it by a certain amount of blood loss they randomized them into this relugolix relugolix it's almost sounds like (laughs) ricola combination therapy And I'll put out the doses in the notes there and stuff like that. So you got 24 weeks of this combo therapy or you got 12 weeks of the combo therapy followed by just 12 weeks of the Regolix monotherapy. So just that ingredient. And the primary outcome was how much blood did these women lose or did they have a 50% reduction in the menstrual bleeding? And they had a way to quantify this. They got almost 800 patients the age was in their early 40s, and the response rate was somewhere between 71 to 80% in the two studies in the active control group. Now, they compared it to a placebo group, and that placebo group, it was somewhere between 15 and 19% had a response rate, so that they had a reduction less than 80 mils per cycle or a 50% reduction. This gives you an impressive number needed to treat too, Steve. Wow, that's like, whoa. That's in the too-good-to-be- True level, I think. Yes. Uh, now, there were 39 secondary outcomes, which they reported seven in the publication. They called them the key ones. Adverse events were reported in about two thirds of patients, just like that other study. Two thirds of patients reported side effects, but there was no statistical difference in serious adverse events. But I am very skeptical of this trial for several reasons. I mean, reviewing their trial in the clinicaltrials.gov registry showed that they changed their primary outcome through the study the primary outcome both times was this disease-oriented outcome about blood loss not necessarily about how they were feeling not so patient oriented and then they added they only had one secondary outcome when they registered their trial and then they changed it through it to add 38 secondary outcomes in june of 2020 before they published the trial and they report seven key secondary outcomes in the paper saying, oh, look, six out of the seven were good. Both trials were funded by the maker of this drug and the company paid for a medical writer to help them write the manuscript. Multiple authors also declared financial conflicts of interest. <sighs> so I'm skeptical. The drug was approved, and that's why I picked this. This drug was approved in late May of this year. Now, I couldn't find any information on pricing, but the price of the existing medication that you can take estradiol plus norethrodone pills the cost is $1,000 a period $1,000 a month so I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I bet you they've done some studies to figure out geez just how much more can we charge for this combination therapy
4: yeah, and the brand name is actually approved in the U.S. for prostate cancer yeah. also. And it costs $2,300 for 30 pills, according to GoodRx.
3: But I think it's a and lower... This is a lower dose, isn't it? Because this was 40 milligrams of the... Oh, okay. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone receptor. Not that it'll matter, right? Yes. But I, I, We're not rushing out to prescribe this. Kind yeah, of, no. so I was like, yeah, but it just... Oh, this was a scary paper. I had to pick this. This was so scary. You know, coming up with 38 secondary outcomes that weren't in the original plan. I'm like, hmm. Bottom line Be very skeptical of an industry funded trial that changes around its outcomes and publishes a disease oriented primary outcome.
4: Paper eight. Paper number eight cancer specific mortality, all cause mortality, and overdiagnosis in lung cancer screening trials, a meta analysis. Annals of Family Medicine, November, 2020. And this is from our friend and previous PCM Mark Abel. So thank you, Mark and team. The USPSDF has just updated as of March, 2021, their lung cancer screening with low dose CT. They recommend it in adults age 50 to 80 who have a 20 pack year history and currently smoke or who have quit within the past 15 years. And that's a B recommendation. And we started talking about all of this when it kicked off with the National Lung Screening Trial, or NLST, in 2011. And so Mark and his colleagues performed a meta-analysis, including the NLST, and those that have been done since then, including one that came out in February 2020. They used the quality of trials assessment from the Cochrane Risk of Bias Tool. So the results, they found nine RCTs, they removed one due to a high risk of bias, The studies had between 2,450 patients and the NLST with 53,000 patients. The NLST is still by far the largest trial. And six of the eight of these trials are European. The lung cancer specific mortality, 1.7% in the screening group, 2.1% in the control group. Number needed to screen, 250 over 5 to 10 years of follow-up. All-cause mortality was not statistically significant, but it was very close. Number needed to screen 294. You probably remember that in the NLST, they did show an improvement in all-cause mortality. And so the authors thought that overdiagnosis, which was about 20%, was not likely to increase the overall mortality. You worry, you know, if the cancer-specific mortality is good, But the overall mortality isn't good, then are people getting harmed from treatment who wouldn't even need to be treated? That's overdiagnosis. They emphasize the need for standard protocols to minimize harm, which could increase uptake of lung cancer screening, which is still pretty low in the U.S., And I still am concerned that these results might not be reproduced in the community when they're not in a randomized controlled trial, especially in a for-profit health system like the US. However, if you do have a place that can do it with a good protocol, the number needed to screen to prevent disease-specific mortality is similar to that in women age 60 to 69 for mammogram screening. So if you wanna get this going for your patients, then I would suggest some detailed conversations with your radiology center to assess their follow-up protocols and know that other trials have shown us that screening is much more helpful the more they smoke and the older that they are. And for example, the median pack years of smoking in the NLST was 48, so a lot higher than this 20. And also don't let this change you from really working with your patients on quitting smoking, which is really the most important thing to improve their overall mortality.
3: I miss working with Mark. Mark's a super smart guy and I've always enjoyed working with him. So I feel comfortable taking him on, on one point that he made in the paper. And this will also verify, Mark, are you listening to PCMA? Do you listen to PCMA? (laughs) Because I'll find out after this is released in October, whether he listens to PCMA still. So they made a statement that all-cause mortality was not statistically significant, true statement, The existing data were not powered for this outcome. Fine, but I don't agree because a power calculation is done a priori, right? You do it based on, you know, the estimated effect size that you're looking for, and you set a delta for that. But after the study's done, the numbers are what they are, and you don't have to assume anything anymore, and so doing a post hoc power calculation and saying, well, it wasn't powered for that, it doesn't matter whether it was powered a priori for something. Once you get the data and run a proper statistical analysis on the cohort, that's the data you have. And doing the post hoc power calculation or what's called observed power is just another way of expressing the p-value and it can be misleading. It was not statistically significant, but I agree. If true, the point estimate of 03 four percent less deaths over five to ten years would be clinically significant if true but we don't have a demonstration of that in this and you can't say well we just needed more people we don't know if you added more people i.e more power that you would have found that 0.34 percent difference but we know in this group that was studied it wasn't different sorry mark i love what you do love your work i love reading your papers so i'm only just nitpicking here bottom line low dose ct screening
4: improves disease specific mortality in smokers number needed to screen
3: equals 250 paper 9 all right abstract number 9 this is the impact of oral corticosteroids on respiratory outcomes in acute preschool wheeze a randomized clinical trial in the arch dis child 2021 <laughs> now I don't know if you know this, Steve, but Canada is a center of excellence for bronchiolitis. I mean, we have two seasons in Canada. We have autumn and we have bronchiolitis. That's it, right? (laughs) I mean, but interestingly, over the last year, you know how many times I've diagnosed bronchiolitis? Zero. Yeah, exactly. With us all wearing masks and social distancing. and, And washing our hands and not going out where you're sick. You know, I haven't seen cases of influenza. I haven't seen cases of bronchiolitis. So, hey, guess what? Washing your hands and wearing a mask and, you know, physically distancing can work to prevent other things. Anyways, this trial wanted to see if giving preschool children with an acute wheeze some oral prednisolone alters their respiratory outcomes. So it was a multi-centered, double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled trial done in New Zealand. They took children aged two to five years of age with an acute wheeze with any respiratory illness, and they randomized them to two milligrams per kilogram to a maximum of 40 milligrams of oral prednisolone or placebo for a three-day course. So you got three days of prednisone or three days of a placebo. They got close to 500 children. And the primary outcome was the PRAM, the Preschool Acute Respiratory Assessment Measure, the PRAM score at 24 hours. Now, they had a bunch of secondary outcomes as well. Treatment and control group met the definition of equivalence for detecting a difference of one on the PRAM. In other words, the two were equivalent. Giving a placebo was equivalent. So the point estimate and the 95% confidence interval sat within the 95% confidence interval of the treatment group. So equivalence. So not a superiority trial, not a non-inferiority trial, an equivalence trial. Now, the PRAM score was lower in the pregnesolone group at four hours, but that's a subgroup analysis, right? Admission rates, requirement for additional oral pregnesolone and the use of IV medications were lower in the pregnesolone group, although there were no differences between the groups for time taken to return to normal activities or rates of representation to healthcare within seven days. And so those were all some secondary outcomes and stuff. This should be considered hypothesis generating, but for their main outcome, it didn't matter whether you gave the child steroids or not. So this was a well-done study. It demonstrates how most children with acute wheeze get better within 24 hours. And now the differences in the secondary outcomes, okay, hypothesis generating, and would need to be confirmed with a follow-up randomized control trial unlikely that that'll happen. But it is important to remember, these results don't apply to those children less than two years of age, littler Weezers, and children over the age of five, because the cohort was two to five.
4: It's really interesting because, you know, it it works in asthma, right? For let's say the five-year-old kids, you're not really supposed to diagnose asthma before about five. We know that steroids don't work in bronchiolitis, which is sort of like a wheezy respiratory illness below two. So somewhere it makes sense to try steroids somewhere along that spectrum from baby bronchiolitis to pediatric asthma. And so I think this is, to me, another myth buster. Like, you know... You might think that it's related to, you know, pre-asthma or something like pre-diabetes or pre-hypertension.
3: Yeah, this is their first presentation of asthma and stuff like that. But you can always give them a bronchodilator. Right. I wouldn't fault someone for giving someone some albuterol. Right. Give them a bronchodilator. And if it works, ah, okay, maybe asthma. If it doesn't work, ah, bronchiolitis. Right. And then you don't need the steroids. And the steroids, you know, that's pretty big guns. Yeah, it
4: does seem like there's this whole area of kids that just sort of wheeze. And when I was in residency, they used to call this reactive airway disease, which you're not supposed to do anymore. So I think this is actually super helpful to show that don't use steroids in those wheezers between two and five. Bottom line.
3: Most happy little wheezers get better in 24 hours with supportive care.
4: Paper 10. Abstract number 10, we're ending with a big gun here from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Screening for colorectal cancer, a recommendation statement from May 2021 in JAMA.
2: Guideline review.
4: And so you can use your alarms here. Practice changing update from the USPSDF.
2: Whoop, whoop,
3: whoop, whoop. So should we ask people to pull over if you're listening to this in the car or you're running yeah. or jogging? Maybe just stop. We don't want people to injure. We don't want car accidents, but this is practice changing. Yeah. Colorectal
4: cancer is the third leading cause of cancer death for both men and women. 52,000 people will die in the U.S. in 2021 from colon cancer, and 10.5% of new colorectal cancers occur in people younger than 50. And they say the incidence of colorectal cancer, especially adenocarcinoma in adults age 40 to 49, has increased by 15% in the last 15 years. So... The USPSTF updated their 2016 recommendation by commissioning a systematic review to look at the benefits and harms of screening for colorectal cancer in adults 40 and older, and they commissioned a model, like they do for many of their interventions, comparing different strategies. So here's the recommendation. Screen for colorectal cancer in all adults age 50 to 75. That's an A recommendation, the strongest recommendation. Screen for colorectal cancer in adults aged 45 to 49. That's the change. That's a B recommendation. And another change is you can selectively offer screening for colorectal cancer in adults aged 76 to 85. That's a C recommendation. So shared decision-making. They suggest you can do a FIT test every year, a colonoscopy every 10 years, a FLEX-SIG every five years. And I think the modeling here is totally fascinating. It's like super nerdy. But if you start at age 45 instead of 50, you'll gain 26 life years per thousand people screened. And you'll save one death from colorectal cancer per thousand people screened. That's if you start at age 45 instead of 50. Comparing the colonoscopy strategy to the FIT strategy if you get the colonoscopy strategy, you'll get 3.4 on average lifetime colonoscopies versus 1.5 lifetime colonoscopies if you use the FIT strategy. So that seems like a no-brainer to me, especially when you consider that cardiovascular and GI complications are about 14 per thousand individuals screen with colonoscopy. So that's a pretty high rate of cardiovascular and GI complications. So... We're now recommending starting screening at age 45 for colon cancer. It's not as strong as an A, but it's a B. And the USPSDF recommendation here has the usual strengths from their reviews. No financial conflicts of interest, clear use of a systematic review and evidence ratings. They clearly articulate the recommendations and they have an opportunity for public comment and external feedback.
3: Yeah. And one of the other things they do is they don't consider cost, right? They're just considering right. evidence. And then society can decide whether or not to implement this or not. So I think that's really important. A couple other points I always like to make about screening. One is screening means they're asymptomatic. So full stop. If you've got symptoms, you're not going to do it every two years, every five years or whatever. If they've got symptoms, you're going in now, right? So just remember, this is talking about asymptomatic people. That's what it applies to. And then I like the grading scale. You know, the A is like, hey, you better be doing this, right? You know, and B is, uh, you better be doing this. C is consider doing this, right? A, B, C. And then they do have an I recommendation. And I always say I is, "Ah, I don't know. But it means insufficient evidence, actually. But it's usually an I don't know. So they've got that grade A recommendation for the 50 to 75-year-olds. But to give you some spaced repetition on this one, 45 to 49, I think you're in that age group there, Steve. You be doing this, right? You be doing this. Well, you know, until this came
4: out, I thought I had another couple years before I had to go to my doctor to get my fit test. But looks like I am gonna have to be considering be doing it now. this. You
3: be doing this.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line: the USPSTF now recommends colon cancer screening ages 40 to 75, with an option to continue to age 86.
3: there you go everyone those are the 10 scary abstracts for the October edition of PCMA but you know what don't be too scared off send us some comments we want to hear your feedback and we will be sitting down for the November Thanksgiving gobble 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 issue so please send us your feedback and you may end up getting a shout out on PCMA yeah thanks Ken
4: that was fun as always we'll talk to you all next time
7: Sum
0: this all up. Summary. The summary. Let's start off with PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. And Paper 1 is the efficacy and safety of antidepressants for the treatment of back pain and osteoarthritis. And this systematic review looked for answers for conclusions about the impact of antidepressants on chronic back pain. And they decided to look at studies that include back, hip, or knee pain. And it also had two primary outcomes. And also included a lot of sponsored studies. So you can just picture Ken Milne's head spinning around, uh, I'm sure. Spun him like a top. The review showed only moderate certainty that SNRIs might help with the pain. The numbers did not show clinical significance, however, and there were definite side effects. So... The search for an evidence-based back pain treatment that makes a clinically significant difference continues.
1: Paper number two, Major GI Bleeding in Older Persons Using Aspirin, Incidents and Risk Factors in the ESPRI Randomized Control Trial from GUT 2021. Since 2019, we've been loath to prescribe ASA for primary cardiac disease prevention in patients over the age of 70, or if they were younger and at high risk of GI bleeds. And this paper in the BMJ looked into some of the specific stats from that paper with regards to GI bleeds. It showed that those patients over 70 who were given ASA had an increased risk of major bleeding in the realm of 1.5 per thousand.
0: Paper 3, a randomized trial comparing prescribed light exercise to standard management for emergency department patients with acute mild traumatic brain injury. This was an unblinded RCT comparing light exercise to standard management for mild TBI. They were looking to see which group fared better in terms of post-concussive symptoms at 30 days post-injury. And, you guessed it, there was no statistical difference between the two groups. So getting our adult patients with mild TBI to do a bit of gentle exercise like walking doesn't lead to harms, but it doesn't make them get better faster. Paper number four, Association of Intravenous Radio
1: Contrast with Kidney Function, a Regression Discontinuity Analysis from JAMA Internal Medicine. Regardless of this paper's conclusions, I just love that Steve opened with his admission that he didn't know what a regression discontinuity analysis was, let alone what was called a fuzzy regression discontinuity analysis. So now on to the conclusions. And really, as if this couldn't get any better, this paper actually busts the myth that IV contrast from CT scans causes renal damage. Six months out from the contrast administration, there was no noticeable difference on EGFR between treatment groups. A disease-oriented outcome, but still good news in my books. So as Ken and Steve said, if the patient need the test,
0: this shouldn't stop you from giving it to them. Paper 5. Short-course antimicrobial therapy for pediatric community-acquired pneumonia. This safer, randomized clinical trial, JAMA Pediatrics. And this sounds like a very pediatric approach to a Halloween edition, a safer randomized control trial. And Vanessa, if paper three got Ken's head spinning, this one got him riled up. He said things like, I quote, they tortured the data. And he quite rightly pointed out that the author really used statistical jujitsu. But in the end, what does it say? Well, if you are treating a kid for what you think is a bacterial community-acquired pneumonia, you can probably treat them for five days. You probably don't need to treat them for 10. This is a bit of a tease, Vanessa. Hobie and I actually just finished having a really good conversation about antibiotic stewardship and how long we should be treating different infections for. So keep on listening, because when that one drops, it's going to blow your mind. Ooh, exciting. Paper 6. Delayed Antibiotic Prescription for Children with Respiratory
1: Infections, a Randomized Trial from Pediatrics 2021. So in this Spanish study, it was found that delayed antibiotic prescription for common pediatric respiratory infections actually reduces the use of antibiotics in this patient population. There were questions about external validity and whether different patient populations would be as accepting of instructions for delaying antibiotic use,
0: but it is certainly great information to have in your back pocket. Paper 7, Treatment of Uterine Fibroid Symptoms with Relugolix Combination Therapy. If anyone other than me enjoys hearing Ken get upset over the quality of a study, oh my goodness, we have just been having a complete heyday this month because Paper 7, this one is another one. This industry-sponsored study looked at whether a very expensive therapy would help with fibroid-associated menorrhagia. But get this, the authors changed their primary outcome during the trial, and added about 20 secondary outcomes. About 20. So your skeptical radar should be exploding right about now. Skip this therapy. Relugalix, Forget about it. You never heard about it. Certainly not here. Memory erased. (laughs) Paper number
1: eight. Cancer-Specific Mortality, all because Mortality, and Overdiagnosis in Lung Cancer Screening Trials, a Meta-Analysis, from the Annals of Family Medicine, 2020. While we must continue, of course, to focus on smoking cessation for our patients, this study notes that screening for lung cancer with low-dose CT scans does decrease lung cancer-specific mortality, and you get even more bang for your buck if the patients are older and are heavier smokers. We're not saying that you should do this for every single person, but in those higher-risk patients. It could be something to consider.
0: Paper 9, Impact of Oral Corticosteroids on Respiratory Outcomes in Acute Preschool Wheeze, a randomized clinical trial in Archives of Disease and Childhood 2021. So this study, Vanessa got the PCMA stamp of approval as a well-done study. This study compared prednisolone to placebo for preschool-aged kids and found no difference in the PRAM scores at 24 hours. The secondary outcomes did really look like they were heading in favor towards treatments because there was less hospitalizations and less IV medications required. But we really should study these a little bit further before we have conclusive evidence. So right now, we can just be reminded that happy wheezers will usually get better without oral steroids.
1: And rounding out PCMA for the month, paper number 10. The US Preventative Services Task Force recommendation statement on screening for colorectal cancer published in JAMA 2021. This was an update to the USPSTF CRC screening guidelines and I love how straightforward these are. There is strong evidence to support the current practices of screening patients aged 50 to 75 for colorectal cancer, and now there is an added B level recommendation for screening patients aged 46 to 50. So, I guess creepy little sample pots, here I come. So that was PCMA. Now, Heidi,
0: what do we have on the rest of the show?
4: It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee.
0: Well, Hobie and I talked about social media, Vanessa, and talked about the potential interaction between social media use and mental health. And we we talked about a couple of papers on this topic. And a couple of take-home points for me was that using screens at night and accessing social media perhaps cause some mental health challenges because it impacts sleep. Sleep is the linchpin in mental health and well-being.
2: The Generalist. The generalist.
1: Moving on to The Generalist. This month, Ben Shepard was joined by Penny Wilson, another Australian generalist with specialized training in obstetrics, in order to chat about contraception, namely the long-acting contraceptives and then different options available to women for emergency contraception. There was some crossover between these two topics, so we split the piece into two pieces, just to help you really focus on each one and lay down the recommendations into those brains of yours. Eating disorders.
0: And then Justine Arducci joined me for a conversation about eating disorders.
1: That's right. And I'm sure most of us are aware that our understanding of eating disorders has progressed a lot in the last few decades, and we are well beyond the point where the two issues taught and studied in medical school were only anorexia and bulimia. So this segment was a really great introduction to that broader scope of topic as it stands today. You and Dusty did a great job with that piece, Heidi, and I'm looking forward to more pieces on these challenging and very often overlooked and underdiagnosed disorders.
3: Rural Medicine Talks.
0: This month on Rural Medicine, you were joined by Dr. Julie Meath as she discussed the case of a baby who presented with altered mental status. This was a great run through as the differential for AMS, particularly in this age group, as well as a good overview of the workup and treatment options. Well, Vanessa, it's been a great month here at Right on Prime. So thankful that you could join me here for it. And I look forward to being back again next month when we can share some wonderful continuing medical education with all of you good folks who are out there fighting it out day to day in the trenches. Thanks so much, Heidi. And thanks to everyone listening. And remember, keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters.